Hello, everyone. Welcome to bonus episode number one of the CineSnob podcast. Uh, I'm Cody Viafania, one of the writers on CineSnob.net. And since the podcast is fairly new, I'm going to explain to you what a bonus episode is. Um, as you know, or may know, the regular CineSnob podcast has the three of us doing our weekly show where we talk about movie releases, movie news, and that sort of thing. But we also wanted to have an area where we can have extended interviews with people from TV and films and things like that. So with that being said, I'm very excited about our first guest ever on the podcast. Uh, he's an incredible actor, comedian, impressionist, voice actor. Um, you may know him best as the man who voices in Puppeteers, Craig Ferguson's robot skeleton sidekick, Jeff Peterson, on The Late Late Show on CBS. And joining me today for the podcast is Josh Robert Thompson. Josh, thank you for joining me today. Hey, thanks, man. That was a hell of an intro. That was probably the best intro I've ever gotten. Thank you. Oh, that's good. It was completely prepared. So uh, <laughs> that's I, probably yeah. you actually. You know, you uh, you Googled stuff, so I'm impressed. Thank you. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so um, I kind of wanted to start uh, by talking about impressions because that's uh, that's one of the main things you you kind of have notoriety for. Um, but I, I want to know about kind of your younger years. So, you know, when you hear about people who are fascinated with voice acting or impressions, at a young age, they'll like record people's voices or record on TV and try to mimic things. Um, is that something you did when you were younger? Yeah, yeah. Well, I was, uh, I was a kid growing up in, uh, you know, the pre-internet uh, era. So there wasn't a lot of like digital recorders or, uh, you know, YouTube or anything like that. So basically I had a Fisher Price tape recorder and uh, I would record stuff off of the TV. The Muppet Show. The Muppet Show was the show that I watched all the time, and I would try to mimic uh, all of the characters. And then I and then I discovered, as I started to watch the ending credits for the show, that there were people's names associated with the characters. Sometimes it would be just one guy's name, and then a list of five characters. And I and I couldn't understand how how that was possible that one person could do all those different voices. So I went to the library, the what? Yeah, the library, and I uh, got a book called Of Muppets and Men, which I have now. I actually ordered it recently, but it's it's a great book about the behind the scenes of The Muppet Show. And then I got to know these guys, you know, by reading about them, Jim, Jim Henson and Frank Oz and Dave Gels, who does Gonzo, and uh, Steve Whitmire, all these guys. And so, and so that's really how I began to get into mimicking voices was because of that show. And also uh, SCTV mm -hmm. it was a great, I mean, a, one of the greatest comedy shows of all time, SCTV with John Candy and Rick Moranis, Joe Flaherty, you know, all those guys. And um, they all played multiple characters as well. And I noticed I'd see them on camera and like John Candy one time would have a mustache and they'd have like a crazy wig. Yeah, I was very young, so I didn't quite understand what was going on. But I recognized that one guy or one woman would play multiple characters. So that really uh, that really appealed to me. Mm -hmm. And so what what impression was kind of like your first excuse me, your first foot in the door? Like what was the one that really began to like resonate with people? Probably in high school, I used to call into a college college radio show called Brain Rot Radio Theater. It's probably the best name ever for a radio <laughs> show. And uh, this was in the late 80s, early 90s. This was on WCSB 89.3 FM, which is uh, Cleveland State University's 
college radio stations. Still going, still one of the best in the world. And I used to call into the show as a retired Johnny Carson because around 1992 is when Johnny Carson retired from The Tonight Show. And so I used to call in as Johnny, and I'd say, I'm looking for work, and uh, I'm really pissed off. And, and they really liked that. They, uh, the appeal of the show is that as a kid, you could call in and you could do anything you wanted. It was like a, like a performance hour. And you could call in and you know read poetry. Some kids would read short stories. I mean, other kids would call in and do crazy voices. And that was my chance to call in and do this stuff. And so those guys really enjoyed that. And they kept having me call in. I think I used to call in. I called in that show for about four or five years. That was a really, really important uh, show for me. Right. And kind of beyond that, it seems like uh, with your impressions, you kind of – you want to go further than just being able to um, to mimic the voice. You want to kind of make a character out of it almost, right? Yeah, I think that's that's one of the things that I always don't like about impressions. You know, impressions are like a magic trick. I mean, it really is. And once and once a guy or a girl does an impression, you know, after about 20 seconds of being excited that they sound like the person, you know, it's then it's kind of like, OK, then now what? Now what can you do? Mm-hmm. Because you can't really just do the voice or do a close approximation of the voice for 20 minutes on stage and, and hold an audience's interest. You have to have something else. And so that's why I always like to figure out the quirks and the nuances of the character. You know, like when I, when I would do Arnold Schwarzenegger on the Howard Stern show, I think the reason that that was so successful wasn't necessarily because I sounded like Arnold Schwarzenegger, but because I could talk like him and have a conver- have a full conversation as him, mm-hmm. you know, without missing a beat. That That's really the, the key there. And, you know, I don't know. I think a lot of like on the internet, there's a lot of like kids that do pretty good impressions or like okay impressions, but mm-hmm. it's it's not good enough for me. I like to sort of become the person, which sounds weird, but that's, right. that's what I do. What about like it seems that for people who who can do impressions, that that it seems like there might be a lot of social pressure to be like on all the time, like going places and for for you to be like, hey, do Morgan Freeman or do Arnold. Uh, is, is that accurate? Is that a tough thing to deal with? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you kind of set yourself up for it. I think the older I get, the more I realize that, you know, complaining about it isn't really that appealing to people because they, because people don't understand. It's really, it's, it's a weird thing because it's like, uh, you know, dance for me, monkey. Right. Exactly. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, especially at parties or gatherings or hanging out with friends. I think since high school, I was always looked to as the as the funny guy, but see, part of that is, um, and this has to do really with being a comedian. I think this is true for most comedians, not to wax too philosophical here, but, but, you know, most of us are, are trying to, um, entertain people because we're seeking approval from people. Right. So when you're, when you're younger and you have this kind of, I don't know, power and you can do impressions and tell jokes, you use it to, become friends with people and then people only know you for that thing and then of course they expect that from you all the time mm-hmm. um that's where it becomes difficult because performing i love doing it it's my favorite thing in the world but i also like to not be doing it and be unwinding 
Right. And uh, so when you know, I think mostly, I think, I think it's mostly with the robot, with Jeff Peterson, where people say, "Hey, say balls or in yeah. your pants," but I don't get that a lot because I'm hidden, so nobody can see. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, last question about impressions. Um, one of the thing I, I I love is people who can do obscure impressions, and it's not ex- obscure in like the sense that they're of ex- obscure people, but impressions that not many people do. So like, like Bill Hader does a John Malkovich that's great. Uh, yeah. And and in recent weeks, like on the show, you've done Danny Glover and Dr. Oz, things that not very many people, if any, do. Uh, so what are some of your favorite, like, obscure impressions that you're able to do that maybe you have or haven't done, you know, an, in a performance? Yeah, Dr. Oz is one of my – That's a, I'm glad you mentioned that one. And it's funny because um, on The Late Late Show, I've been doing a lot more impressions simply because I've been allowed to. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that the show has been set up. Craig Ferguson, the host of the show, you know, I mean, it's his show. So largely, I don't jump until he says jump. I'm basically, you know, hiding in the wings, waiting for my opportunity to be called into the proceedings. And then when that happens, I have to be ready with something. Um, Ever since they announced that the show was ending in December, there's been this new sense of freedom, I think, for everybody on the show, especially between Craig and myself. And so now I've just opened the floodgates and we have this telephone on his desk that I ring. I make it ring with my foot. I actually control the ringing of that phone. Uh, and I decided, you know, instead of like Morgan Freeman and Liam Neeson, the same, you know, two characters that call all the time, let's just go crazy. And it gave me an opportunity to experiment. But Dr. Oz is one of my favorite obscure ones. Because he talks really fast and you can sort of do it and it really, you know, it lends itself to improv because you can do anything with that voice Uh because he's always giving quick remedies. So what you want to do is if you have have a problem with your nose, you want to just, you want to take some asparagus, you want to put it in your nose for about four hours. (laughs) If you start to put some burning, it's going to be fine. Dr. Oz is from Cleveland and I'm from Cleveland and he has this way of, it's like, it's called, I call it fast speak because he, you you can understand what he's saying, but he's he's talking very fast and and it's almost like he... He is so eager to get the words out that the, the physicalization of those words, it, it's, it's almost ahead of him two steps. Mm-hmm. He has so much information to give out and so little time on that show. And he's talking very fast. When you take a banana, you would put it between your toes. And then for about, for about a week, you want to just think about it. You know, it's, it, that's a great voice. Also, um, John Carradine, who is uh, – <laughs> he's a – you know, he's no longer with us, but – He's a really old actor. He's the father of, uh, you know, David Carradine and uh, all the Carradines, really. And he, he has this great voice. And he talks like this. Oh, I'm John Carradine. And, I mean, he, this guy was a great Shakespearean actor. He was in a bunch of horror movies. He was probably in more movies than anybody in the world. And for whatever reason, that voice is extremely appealing to me. Um, that's, you know, you mentioned recording voices. That's something I still do. Even if I hear regular people, you know, at a restaurant or, you know, overhearing a conversation somewhere, I will sometimes ask them if they could say a few things into my, uh, digital recorder, or I'll just, you know, covertly record them and keep their voices on file. Mm -hmm. Because there's so many interesting voices out there. And then I might use those later, not for impressions, but for, for characters, if I'm working on an animated show or a video game or something like that, I might incorporate that. That's what everybody does. Everybody takes a little bit from 
somewhere else. And like, uh, like Miriam, there's a character called Miriam. Hello, Craig, it's Miriam Smithers who calls into the Late Late Show. Mm -hmm. And that's really my tribute to the old woman that Johnny Carson played on The Tonight Show and also the late uh, Jonathan Winters. He had a, I think it's Fanny uh, uh, Farmer. He played it. He played an old lady character too. I mean, these are, these are, you know, these are really old references that a lot of young people they wouldn't even know what the hell I'm talking about. But it doesn't matter because it's it's a nice tribute and it also makes for a really funny character. Right. So. Right. Um, so transitioning a little bit to the Late Late Show, um, you know, I, I you know I was kind of a late arrival to the show, um, but. Uh, I know that over the years, just from watching old clips, that that Jeff has kind of evolved. Um, you know, I know the original intention was kind of poking fun at the sidekick tropes that you would see on TV, but then you and Craig developed this chemistry, and and you kind of became more of a traditional sidekick. Um, can you talk a little bit about the chemistry between you two and how things evolved to the point where they are now? Yeah, it was uh, four years ago. Can't believe it's almost four years ago that, uh, well, over four years ago now that uh, Craig asked me to do the voice of the robot, and they came up with this idea that he wanted to have this robot skeleton sidekick to make fun of the late night format. The idea being that CBS couldn't even afford a real person, so they had to get this, you know, cheaply made robot. I put cheaply made in quotes because the robot was anything but cheap, and it was really well made by Grant Imahara from uh, MythBusters. Mm -hmm. And um, so at first, at first I came in and just recorded phrases for Jeff to say. I, I didn't puppeteer it. I was not in the studio during the show. And that went on for a year. I came in every couple of weeks and recorded a new batch of phrases, you know, like bulls, in your pits and all that. Those became like the staple phrases because that's all Jeff could say over and over again. I think he could say up to like 12 phrases per show. And one of the writers would operate those phrases off of an iPad, I think. But there was no there was no actual physical control of a remote control device. And then we started experimenting with me puppeteering and voicing Jeff live in the studio during the second year. And the first time we did it, it was a massive hit. I mean, Craig couldn't stop laughing and there was just something about Craig and I, I mean, we, we have a lot in common in terms of our, our love of, you know, vaudeville comedy, you know, Laurel and Hardy, uh, certainly SCTV and Monty Python. We also share a lot in common musically in our love of electronic music. Of course, we've, we've poked a lot of fun at Kraftwerk. We've even played the members of Kraftwerk in on-camera sketches called Christmas with Kraftwerk, which is really fun. But So that's how, I think that that's kind of that unspoken thing, though, too. You can't really plan for how, how you're going to connect with somebody like that. And I have to say, it, it, it's been a really amazing and unusual job because, you know, I'm hidden away the entire time, and Craig has to interact with this relatively immobile robot who at the time could only move, move one arm and move his head back and forth and open and close his mouth. I mean, that's not a lot, that's not a lot to really go on, but somehow, you know, thankfully, amazingly, I was given the freedom to do whatever I wanted with that character. I mean, whatever I wanted there, nobody, you know, I think one time they told me, you know, cut it out, whatever it was. I think I was 
pretending the robot was drunk too many times. And I still don't understand that one. Mm -hmm. I wasn't allowed to do that anymore. But uh, no, man, I was given free reign to create this character. And we just, what you see on TV is happening in real time. So when you see the relationship evolving between Jeff and Craig or between myself and Craig, that's a real thing that's happening right there on the air. Because otherwise, we don't really talk outside of the show, other, other than when we're on a comedy tour together. You know, there's no planning. There's no discussion beforehand. There's no hanging out. You know, we're, we're not, we're not, you know, <laughs> Craig and I are not guys that hang out like, hey, you want to come over and hang? It's, it's, we don't do that. But uh, it works that way. You just show up and then turn the cameras on and go. It, there's kind of a cool danger to that, too. But, yeah, it's worked very well. And and what about from like a, a perspective from as as being a voice actor? Um, is this kind of like the holy grail of jobs? Being able to you've you've had full control of creating a character. You get to improvise on a nightly basis and have free reign. Um, is that kind of like the peak it gets when you're voicing someone? I would say so. I would say so. That's I mean, it's always a really nice treat to be able to improvise, and that's that's my strength. I I really don't like scripts at all. I mean, I'll, I'll do a movie, I'll do a sitcom, I'll do a scripted thing for sure. I mean, if you write me a check, no problem. But uh, no, but I, I, to be able to, to be able to create the character and then improvise every night. And then really, this is the other part, be allowed to display all of the other abilities that I have, you know. Being able to call in on this phone and do a multitude of characters and impressions and to be able to voice an entire, you know, fake band that's hidden behind a curtain. I mean, that's it's a lot of freedom and a lot of creativity. I think the only the only part that is the downside, if there is a downside, is that, again, so few people know who the guy is that's doing those things. Right. I mean, it's enjoyable to me, and that's really what matters. And I don't care if it doesn't matter if people love it or hate it. But it kind of, at the end of the day, you kind of go, God, I wish, I wish more people knew that. But I think that's the case for a lot of voice actors. I think that as a voice actor myself, as that being one of the things I do, I am more aware, certainly more aware of who does what voice. You know, like the other day, my buddy was, uh, my buddy is a makeup effects artist. He was wearing a Transformers T-shirt. And he was uh, at a bar somewhere in Burbank. And some guy walked up to him and said, hey, nice T-shirt. Are you going to go see the new Transformers movie? And he, my friend said, why, should I? And the guy said, yeah, you should, because I'm the, I'm the guy who does the voice of Bumblebee. Oh, wow. And I just about shit myself. <laughs> I was like, man, why wasn't I there for that? <laughs> you know, but, that, but I didn't know. But see, that, but there's a guy. I mean, I knew the guy's name, but I didn't know what he looked like. So. Right. There's a guy who's in a you know massive movie franchise. Nobody knows who the hell he is. Right. So, but still, but still, his work is to me personally, you know, legendary, and he'll be known forever as that. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that's so impressive to me um, is 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 kind of Craig's willingness to share the spotlight because, especially during the tweets and emails section of the show, that is kind of your spotlight. You get to do. Your impressions, your characters, all of that. Um, can you talk about kind of Craig's willingness to share that and the freedom that it gives you in return? 
Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's extremely generous of him. I mean, look, if I had my own talk show and and some punk kid suddenly came in, you know, four or five years into it, I'd be like, well, who's this asshole? You know, this. <laughs> I mean, that's for any for any performer, especially a comedian. That is really tough. That is really. I mean, that's why most comics do their act alone. We don't want to share the stage with somebody. Uh, and I think at first, Craig's direction to me was just, you know, let's ease into this. Let's not go crazy with it. And one of the things I learned as a sidekick is that, you know, you just you don't speak until spoken to. I don't think I ever crossed that line. I always wait until Craig looks at me or addresses me. But uh I think somehow the tweets and emails segment of the show, which is the third segment of the show, if you count the cold open, really became the place where I would do most of my stuff. And I think I think because that's really the only part of the show, other than the end of the monologue, that I that I have time to shine, that it that it became that way. And also I think I think as a sidekick, you know, the host the host will lean on you especially during slow nights or if he feels like he's just not into it. Maybe he's tired. I know that when, when his, uh, his baby was born a few years ago, you know, he, he never slept at all. And so he would come in and, you know, the producer would always say to me, Josh, Craig is really tired and he's in a bad mood and it's a horrible audience. So good luck. And then, <laughs> but, you know, he says this every day. He would say this all the time, like two seconds before the show starts. He would always say, you know, Craig is going to be leaning on you really heavily. And and that's what it's about. You know, when the host needs your help, that's what you're there for. And and out of that came this really funny relationship between a guy and his gay robot skeleton. And uh, that's really, I mean, that's really it. It's just, it, there's again, there's we don't talk about any of this. So mm -hmm. some nights I don't know. Some nights, I mean, I'm pretty good at reading him now, but some nights I I couldn't figure out if I was saying too much, if I'd gone too far, you know, but his rule is always just the hell with them. Just do whatever you want. And, you know, if, if it's no good or offensive or whatever, we'll cut it out later. So. And kind of on the same thing, there's, there's sections during the monologue. I think pretty much every night you two go back and forth with like puns or whatever. Um, and then, uh, you know, there's sections of the show where, Craig will mention a character and then he'll grab the phone and expect you to call in uh, with, <laughs> with, with something you've never done before. So um, this, this kind of there's like a sense of you guys almost challenging each other and pushing each other to go somewhere you haven't gone before. Does that does that help bring out the best in both of you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. No, that's funny. That, I'm just laughing because he, you know, Craig would Craig likes to screw with me. Mm hmm. And it's fun for him. And I think he gets enjoyment out of the fact that m most of the time when he challenges me, I can meet the challenge. And, uh, <laughs> you know, one time, you know, there's a, there's a character I play called Jerry. Uh, this is Jerry from Room Service, sir. And Jerry, Jerry from Room Service, I just thought it'd be funny if the Late Late Show had a room service guy that interrupts the show now and again to see how Craig is doing and if he needs anything mm -hmm. sent down for him. Of course, the idea being that CBS is so cheap that, you know, that would never be the case. We always joke about our show being done in a basement and how we have no money, and um, which is true. But um, so one night Craig said, what if what if Jerry, he brought the phone over to Jeff Peterson. He picked the phone up off his desk and walked over to the robot and said, you know what, Jeff, why don't you talk to Jerry? 
And so now it was me having a conversation with myself as both characters. And it went along for a while until I forgot who I was. And I think <laughs> I had Jeff talk like Jerry. But see, then it, then it provides a huge laugh. And then, then you're talking about comedy from a bygone era of the variety shows. I think the stuff that we do, if we were doing it in the 70s, you know, we would be on prime time. I think we're doing stuff like the Carol Burnett and Friends show. I think that our relationship comedically is like Tim Conway Jr. and Harvey Korman. Uh, those guys were always making each other laugh, always. And that was one of the joys of watching that show. Was when is Tim Conway, excuse me, not Tim Conway Jr., Tim Conway, when is Tim Conway going to you know, make Harvey Korman lose it? And that's something we do all the time. We always screw with each other. And yeah, it's true. It's true, man. When he says, uh, what other late night talk show hosts might call me, you know, and I've already done Leno yeah. and I've already done Jimmy Fallon. So I just go for it and call in as a surly David Letterman, even though I don't really do David Letterman. Yeah. I, I think the best example of that from, from the past couple months was the sh surge from Philadelphia uh, bit. Yeah. That was uh, that was amazing. Yeah, Serge is a character that makes Craig laugh so hard. That's the only time, that's pretty funny, that the network, the, the network, CBS network, the network, there was, a, there was a note that I received from the network, and it simply said, more Serge. <laughs> like, of all the characters, and so when Craig and I are on tour, uh, and we're, you know, we're being driven to some venue, I will start doing Serge. And he just, he cannot keep it together. It's so funny. Yeah. You know, so that, that, that's a weird character because the, the accent is so unplaceable. <laughs> I mean, it's all over the place. Like, hat, Serge, hair, you, great, great. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Well, we're going to get down to the star. The what? The star? You know, just like words that make no sense. And I don't know. It's really, it's really fun. So while it, 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 this isn't something that's advertised, but it's really no secret that the show is almost completely improvised, um, yeah. which all things considered is incredible. Um, I'm interested to know if you think that it's important for people to know that or, um, you know, so they can see the difficulty of what you and Craig are, are pulling off. Or if you guys have the mindset of as long as people are laughing, then it doesn't matter if they know or not. Yeah, I think that's mostly the mindset. I know Craig certainly is very you know, adamant that that's all that matters is, as long as people are laughing. And I think that's true to a, to a degree. Um, I recently did a series of sketch comedy videos that were, were to be part of my television, you know, pilot for my own comedy variety show. And I put them up on YouTube. There's a bunch of them out there and they're all improvised. You know, and when I watch some of them, I'm even amazed by the by the other performers. It it you you could it's you'd be so hard pressed to think that it was improvised. It looks like it was scripted, and you just think there's no way. But I think when when people know that it's improvised, I think it's an added element of magic. It's just like an impression. You know, when somebody goes on stage, you know, you know that this person doesn't really sound like that, and now they're doing this voice and it's, it's amazing. And also when a performer is on stage and they're doing crowd work and you know, as an audience member that this person is interacting with the audience and everything that they're saying is 
coming from nowhere, which I think for me makes it twice as amazing. Mm -hmm. I think the fact that, you know, people don't realize for me personally what I do behind that wall. I mean, with all the musical instruments and, you know, taking notes and making the phone ring with my foot, you know, and puppeteering the robot, puppeteering the rhino and keeping track of all the voices. I mean, that, to me, that's a pretty amazing kind of magic trick. And I think if people knew that that's what was going on back there, it, it might not make it funnier, but they'd certainly have more of an appreciation, yeah. you know. So I do think I do think it's important. I definitely think it's important. Like the next series of videos that I'm shooting this summer, I'm doing small intros, 10, 20 second intros as myself at the top of the show to to sort of let people know who is playing these characters and also to let people know, hey, this is all made up, mm. you know, but you'd be surprised how many people don't know what improvisation means. Mm. So you've got you've got that hurdle when you say improv to people. It's kind of like saying podcast, because I've had this problem. You say podcast, people, and they go, what? <laughs> yeah. They don't know what that means, because you know the term broadcast and the term iPod are both, really, if you think about it, kind of outdated. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about a word that is a combination of two essentially outdated words. And for people like, you know, most of Craig Ferguson's viewing audience, not all, they're of a certain demographic. It's like, you know, 50 and over. So they're like, what? A pod what? So instead of saying improv, I usually try to say unscripted. Yeah. Because that seems to resonate more with people. But yeah, I think it's important. I definitely think it's important for people to know that. You, you, you just described kind of like the entire rig that you use for Jeff. And, and not only Jeff, but all of the voices and you're switching back and forth and controlling the, the phone with your foot. Uh, I know that you've talked about possibly making a documentary um, about – that whole process does that look like something that's going to happen i think so yeah i'm it's it's uh surprisingly even though the show's coming to an end there's a lot of red tape and a lot of hoops to jump through to um you know align everything with the network and with worldwide pants which is the production company owned by david letterman that produces our show anyway so i'm i'm definitely i'm bringing in my own guy to shoot everything and I think we're going to make it like a, just a little, you know, really a little five minute piece that we can put on the internet because I, I really would like to document it mm -hmm. before it's all over. Because I think, I think for a lot of people, especially now, especially with, you know, YouTube and, 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 and videos being very, you know, especially go on Yahoo and instead of like a news story, now they have a video instead of reading text, which drives me crazy. Um, people want to see it. People don't believe it or, or they don't understand it unless they can see it. I mean, that's very true of everything. You, ha you have to be able to see what someone's talking about. Uh, it's not enough for me to say, yeah, I, I puppeteer the robot and I have this. I mean, people, people really don't understand. I mean, some people do, but it's really hard for people to grasp the concept that that voice is coming out of you. And so are 25 other voices <laughs> and that you don't, and that you don't know what you're going to say. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's pretty scary. Even saying it now, that's pretty daunting for most people. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's the reason I'm documenting it, and um, also you know to get other people, like Secretariat, uh, you know Joseph Bolter in the front and Ryan McGowan in the back, you know some members of the crew. I just like people to be seen so that you you know who the people are behind these things before it's all over. Well, especially because it's such a unique show. I mean, it's 
I mean, you do, you do, you guys do joke about not being like any other late night talk show, but that really is the case. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, you're right. And I, and I think, I feel like it shouldn't just be me pushing to document it. I feel like, I feel like it would make a great full length documentary. It is a, it is a fascinating show and you probably, you probably won't see another one like it in late night television. Yeah. Certainly. Um, one thing I'm really interested in talking about is the idea of the anonymity that comes with playing Jeff and, and these other voices. It's something you've touched on already a little bit. Because um, yeah. every night you're giving this incredible improvised performance. You've got impressions, jokes, characters, and yet you, being Josh, are not seen. You're not mentioned by name. Um, and so even though you're controlling everything and you're, you know, you're doing the legwork, it's kind of Jeff who is getting the laughs. So um, talk about, if you can, the difficulty of that and, and kind of how that is to deal with. I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's difficult from the, from the perspective of, you know, if you, if you created this amazing work of art, let's say you were a painter and you painted these amazing paintings every night, but there was no one to show them to. Or if you painted these amazing paintings every night and everybody loved the paintings, but they never knew that you were the one that made them. You know, does that make the paintings any less amazing? No. But it kind of sucks for the guy that painted all those things. Yeah. Um, why does it suck? Well, again, like I said before, it's, it's not about accolades. It's not about, oh, I love your work or you suck, bro. It doesn't matter. But I think more for me... I mean, Craig is obviously fine because he's on camera. I mean, people know who he is, but I would like to be known for that work because obviously it will help me <laughs> in the future when there's no more show. Mm -hmm. You know, you can tell people, hey, I'm the guy that does the robot. I was doing a comedy show recently in Burbank, uh, Flappers Comedy Club, very, very respected uh, comedy club in a doing some stand-up and some comic friends of mine that I hadn't seen for years stopped by to watch my set. And I was talking to him afterwards, and the one guy asked, so what have you been up to recently? <laughs> I said, well, um, I do the voice of Jeff the Robot. Um, and before I could finish the sentence, he was like, holy shit, you're Jeff the Robot? And so that kind of illustrates what I'm talking about. Yeah. It's like people, people know about the character, but they don't know who does it uh the same thing with uh when i was on the how i mean i was on the howard stern show for eight years as as fake arnold schwarzenegger that's a long time I mean, the late late show i've been on for it'll be seven years because i also played a lot of characters on camera arnold schwarzenegger de niro all those you know but people don't even remember or know that i did that and i think we have a situation where even though we have all this information at our fingertips people are really lazy about looking stuff up. Mm -hmm. this, is how, this is how it is. It's just the way it is. Um, and I think my PR could be better. I mean, I'm, I'm making efforts right now before the show is over to try to, you know. But yeah, it is frustrating because you, of course, you want people to know that you're the one that makes them laugh. You, you'd like people to know that. Yeah. I mean, who wouldn't? Mm -hmm. yeah. So... Uh, we've heard some some teases on the show that you might be possibly coming to life and appearing on camera either as Jeff or or maybe appearing on camera a little bit more. 
Is there anything you can say about that at this point, or can we expect more of you on camera? Uh, you can. You can expect more of me on camera. I can't say where. Uh, I can't say anything right now. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, at some point, somewhere along the line, you will see something like that. That's as vague. That's a pretty vague uh, response. It is. <laughs> that's all I can give you. Though. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I think that I think you have said this at, at some point, but obviously, this job as a sidekick has a shelf life. Um, had circumstances been different and say Craig had re-upped for another two years, do you think you would have stayed or what was the longevity you saw yourself having in, as this, uh, in this role? Yeah, I would have stayed. I would have absolutely stayed. I mean, it's, 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 it's the most, it's, it's probably the best job in show business. It's definitely the weirdest job in show business, mm -hmm. but anybody that would leave, you know, is a fool. The only reason that it's, it can be difficult is because the time that we shoot the show is about four thirty, five o'clock. And so if, if you want to be able to do other things like a sitcom or shoot a movie, you know, you have to, as an actor, you have to wait until our show is on hiatus mm -hmm. or there's a week off. So it becomes increasingly more difficult to get out and do other things. You know, like Craig is on the show Hot in Cleveland, but he's able to go and record that during the day sometimes, but it's very difficult for him to work that into his schedule. And so when agents and production companies know that you're a regular on a show, you're kind of in a little, in a little bit of a sense off limits because you're, you have a regular gig. So they can't really bring you on to another show. And so if, if I'm not on the Late Late Show anymore, as sad as that is, I mean, it's, it's, it's really, it's not fun for any of us that the show is coming to an end, but I understand. Mm -hmm. But it frees me up then to do other things on camera, like the films and the sitcoms and things like that. Right. So it's a, it's a double-edged sword, but definitely if, if he had said, let's go for another two years, because you know what? The real thing about the show, recognition aside, is that I've learned so much as a performer, as a comedian, as a person. I mean, I started on the show in 2007. And at that time, I was doing public access television. And I was doing some pretty funny characters, but, but my sense of comedy and improv and timing, while they were pretty good, were still wildly you know, raw and in need of being reined in. And in the eight years, is it eight years? Seven or eight years that I've been on the show, I mean, I have, I have been pushed and forced into situations uh, in, an, in an improv setting that have really, you know, changed the way that I am as a performer. And so now I can, it's almost like it was like my training ground. So now I can come out of this and be ready for anything. So I look at it that way too, that it really was very helpful. Mm -hmm. So um, I had listened to an episode of your Driving Myself Crazy podcast. And, yeah. And it was, the, it was the Wits End episode. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, and, and, you know, between that and following your activity on social media, there's like a palpable sense of frustration over a few things that I've heard. Um, one is that, again, we've something we talked about uh, is, uh, you know, the credit for the things that you do on the show. 
But um, I think there's also a sense of uh, that you want to be known as more than just Jeff. Yeah. So, um, so some frustration that people might not have seen like, like your preacher character, Apostle BG, or a lot of the other videos that you've put online in the past year or so. Um, so can you talk a little bit about you know, those feelings that came out during that podcast or sure. on social media, things like that? Yeah, first of all, you know, when I do episodes like that uh, on my podcast, I probably just haven't had lunch. <laughs> so I should probably not record. No, um, it's true, man. I mean, it, it is very frustrating because on one hand, and this is the thing I try to emphasize to people, but they seem to not remember. They, oh, he's an arrogant bastard. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I really love what I do. I, I, I am so grateful for this job at the Late Late Show. It's an amazing job. It's, it's, uh, listen, I can do whatever I want, and I wish the job went on you know, forever, to be perfectly honest with you. But, uh, but yes, on the other hand, there are all of these other things, these characters that I really love to do. And for whatever reason, getting that fan base, just that specific Late Late Show fan base, to accept me in any other role has been has been almost nearly impossible. It is it is really kind of a fascinating phenomenon because it's like how how is it possible? So I think I think what burned me is that I spent so much money on making all of these videos and putting them out there and thinking that you know people that like my work would want to see other things that I do. And being kind of shocked at the sort of tepid response to all of that. And I think a lot of that has to do with marketing. You know, I know Facebook has changed the way that people can even see anything that you post. So I've had a lot of issues with that. But there were surefire things like, you know, cooking with Robert De Niro or uh, the walking with George Lucas, which still to this day is my favorite thing that I've ever done. The the crew and everybody just did an astonishing job on that. And that really, that just went nowhere. So, um, you know, part of that is because a lot of those videos were made uh, and, I, and I wasn't fully on board with everything. Um, the next round of things that I'm making are going to be much more strange and surreal and much more the way that I wanted them. Mm-hmm. But yes, it is disheartening because it's like, hey guys, you know, I'm going to be out of work in December, so it'd be really cool if you guys liked the other stuff too. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know, man. I go back and forth on that. Part of me, this is the important part. Really, you want to you want to just create for creation's sake. I think that's the problem I have with the internet, and one of the reasons I started backing away from all of it is because you get to mired in what everybody else thinks and then you start just creating stuff for people and the cooking with Robert De Niro and the Morgan Freeman GPS like the most popular video of all those videos was the Morgan Freeman GPS now while that was cool it killed me because I was like of course it's the one thing that I keep going back to that everybody wants to see Mm -hmm. But what about, like, the preacher, the Apostle BG is my favorite character. I mean, I can improvise as that guy all day. It makes me laugh harder than anything. And I get it, you know, it's about religion and it's a touchy subject. But if you watch the videos, the guy is so ridiculous that if anybody actually took that seriously, 
they should probably, you know, check themselves into a mental hospital because it's, you know. So, yeah, on one hand, you know, you just want to create stuff to create. I mean, I make music. I have a, I have a studio where I make music and I don't really put my music out there. I think I, I put a little bit of it on a podcast once, but in the background. But you have to be able to just create to create. But also, you'd kind of like people to, you know, look at your stuff, too. Yeah. So it's it you go back and forth. That that's that's always the struggle. The struggle between creativity and commerce. That's I mean that's been going on for 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 decades. Right. And yeah. the 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 WJRT TV that you know you had the Kickstarter for um was the actual pilot the bits that you have like on your website? Well, the pilot was part of those. The pilot was the pilot was a combination of pieces of those sketches, plus plus another connecting story thread. The problem I had with the sketches, just to be honest with you, and I'm kind of retooling everything right now, and I'm taking most of the sketches down and recutting them myself. Mm-hmm. The problem I had with all that stuff, it was too long. Yeah, that can be a problem sometimes. Yeah, I think I think there were a lot of people that voiced that. Um, I didn't really care for some of the editing choices, but by and large, I felt that. You know, eight nine minutes is a is a long time for the internet. Yeah, and apostles' sermons would run about four and a half minutes, which I think was was fine. But we're working to do a new series of videos with a new group of people, meaning a crew and, and a production team, and we're going to do about you know two to three minute videos. And I, and I think that was the first issue that we needed to address. Um, and too many of the same thing, like here's another cooking with Robert De Niro. Here's another cooking with Robert. You know, I I just, I I was bored with it myself. So the way that we worked is we shot a bunch of sketches in one day. So we would do like six cooking with Robert De Niro episodes in one day at somebody's house in their kitchen. And that was last year. And then I would forget about it. And then someone else would cut those together and they'd say, okay, it's up on YouTube. And then you'd be stuck with an eight minute show, Mm -hmm. but nobody really caring about it. So I think it's better to err on the side of shorter, you know, brevity is the key to comedy. And I think that's always the case, especially on the internet. So that's, and that's kind of a weird thing to me because like it's people's attention spans on YouTube videos are getting smaller and smaller yet podcasts are so popular and they're i mean almost an hour long all of them so it's like how do you figure out where like the the sweet spot is for the time yeah i you know look in my case i should have edited those things myself i mean not to say the guy that cut them together is certainly a competent editor but i edit my own podcast Mm -hmm. and my podcasts are rarely ever over an hour i think the longest podcast i ever did was like 56 minutes and usually I keep my podcast to about 25 to 30 minutes. Sometimes I've had a podcast that was like 15 minutes yeah. because it's like, well, that's, you know, I've made my point. I'm done. I don't ever see for me. I don't ever want to put work out there that wouldn't have my stamp of approval. Like if, if I, if I'm watching a video with somebody, this is my litmus test. If, if someone says, Hey, let me see one of your videos and they're in the room with me watching one of my videos. If I ever feel while they're watching a video that I want to say, hey, you know, just uh, skip ahead like two minutes, yeah, then I know it's too long because you can feel, you, you can feel that, like the palpable uncomfortableness 
of the other person. It's like when you're watching a movie that you really love and you say, isn't this great? And you can feel that the other person is struggling to be interested. Yeah. And you go, well, you know, maybe we'll just, you know, I mean, I'll never fast forward a movie. That's like a deadly sin to me. But uh, yeah. anyway, so, so that's how I know. That's my test. And if, if, it's not, if it's not working for me, as much as I love like a scene or a moment or a funny line of dialogue, I'm going to cut it out. You've got to be really hard on yourself. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I'm going back and recutting all those shows. And uh, I think I left The Walking with George Lucas up there, the Morgan Freeman GPS. There was a two-minute teaser for Behind the Sermon, which was an expose on my preacher character, and one other video. I think those were the four that I felt were the best. Mm-hmm. Because I had an executive recently from a network go onto my website and she wanted to look at my videos and there were like, you know, 30 videos on there from the WJRT series. And so she's having to wade through all of these videos and they're each like seven to eight minutes long. And she said, look, this is funny stuff, but these are way too long. I said, yeah, I agree. So, so is that picture you posted of the, the Josh Robert Thompson show? Is that like the re the retooling of this whole idea? Yes, it is. And uh, in public access, you know, back in the public access days, I had a show called The Josh Thompson Show before I became a three-named Hollywood douche, Josh Robert Thompson. <laughs> uh-huh. No, the that, that truth is there was a guy in uh, uh, when I was uh, signing up and becoming a member of the Screen Actors Guild, there was already another actor named Josh Thompson. And the rules stipulate that you cannot have the same name. Uh-huh. So I had to use my middle name. So that's why I became Josh Robert Thompson. So uh, that old podcast, not podcast, that old public access show was very much like a lot of the stuff I started seeing on YouTube. Um, like, uh, I don't remember the guy's name, but he did a long running show called Equals Three. I can't remember his name, but uh, anyway, um, Philip, Philip DeFranco, all of these guys that I, these young guys I would see on YouTube were basically doing the talk soup format from years ago where they, or, or yeah, where they would, they would stand in front of a green screen and talk about issues of the day. And that's how my show used to be. I used to be in front of a green screen and my crew, I would have a camera guy and an engineer and they would laugh at my jokes. And I always kept them in the background laughing because I thought it was funny. And this is in like two, this is in 99, 2000. This is before YouTube. And so I'm bringing that sort of format back, but updating it. And there are going to be a lot of puppets, which is what I wanted for the original show that I did. Mm-hmm. I wanted puppets and almost like a Dr. Seuss, Tim Burton, Pee Wee's Playhouse kind of vibe um, with really experimental stuff, animation, stop motion animation, um, also sketches and weird characters. Definitely the Apostle BG. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my gay character, Robin Super, hi guys, is actually now an even better character called Gary the Ogre, who is a gay ogre. See, that's already funny. You're already laughing. <laughs> yeah. And he wears a tuxedo. And it's just, it, it's, it's much weirder and stranger than what we did before. And I think the, the production team before had it in their mind that, you know, well, we're trying to sell this to FX or HBO, but, in, but forgetting just, just the part where we just create and have fun. Yeah. Because there are so many shows like, you know, Portlandia and certainly everything on Adult Swim where people are pushing the boundaries and there are puppets and there are really weird things. And some of these shows are only 15 minutes in length. 
Yeah. That seems to be the new sitcom length, at least on those channels. So, so yeah, my argument was, no, there are a lot of places that these shows can live, but um, we, have to, we have to just make them first and not worry about how we're going to market them. The internet doesn't care about that. Does, so. does letting, is letting them live on YouTube an option at this point? Um, you mean the new stuff? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, gonna, I'm putting them on YouTube, definitely. That's, that's the whole goal right now is, is mm-hmm. not, uh, not shopping around or whatever. No, no, because I think that's, that's what tripped. I think that for me, that's what tripped us up in the first place was like, right. we've got to make this so that we're hitting all these markets. And I don't like that, that shit that it's like, okay, well, that's no fun. I mean, that's the, that's the antithesis of like what we do on the late, late show. That's right. like, we don't go in there. We don't, I mean, we care about the audience. We joke about that, but really it's for us to make us laugh and, I think the problem, like with Apostle BG, is we didn't get to know him. I mean, it was a guy doing sermons, and that's funny. But now I'm doing like a fake mockumentary on his life. You meet his wife and his friend, and it's it's funny shit. Yeah. Um, anyway, so it's just having the freedom to do that. Definitely, will be on YouTube uh, starting, I think, before maybe September. Oh wow, great! Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about your stand-up because you also have been doing stand-up. Um, you know, both in clubs and on tour with Craig. Um, what What is your stand-up act like? Are you doing, like, traditional stuff, characters? What kind of – what does that look like? Yeah, it's – it's right now it's a, it's a mix of impressions and characters. Uh, I resisted for a long time. You know, I had this lofty idea that, you know, the hell with impressions. I'm going to do material. And first of all, that's hard. Uh, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with doing impressions. Um the audience loves it, and I have a lot of bits that I think are really funny, and people seem to really respond to. But they also like the Apostle BG, so I do a lot of preaching, you know, fake, <laughs> fake sermonizing in my stand-up. And I'm reminded of guys like Jim Carrey, and even, um, oh man, I can't even think right now. Anyway, uh, um, George Carlin. George Carlin, when he started out, did characters. You know, George Carlin, when he was starting out as a comic, he wasn't doing he wasn't doing any of this brilliant, dark, angry, observational humor. He was doing characters. One of his first characters was the hippy dippy weatherman. Yeah. Which in the you know sixties, he was just doing this sort of uh, beat poet type character, but having him do the weather, which was really funny. But it wasn't what he wanted to do. And Jim Carrey started out doing impressions. That's what Jim Carrey was known for. He would go on stage and do impressions of John Wayne and Clint Eastwood and all that stuff, but he got tired of it. And I think that's where I am right now. I have about 25 to 30 solid minutes of comedy, half of which is impressions. The other half is Apostle BG. Mm -hmm. And I really love it. I think it's a really solid set. And now I'm trying to put together another 30 minutes so I can have a have an hour and do an hour special. It's interesting to note that Apostle BG, the preacher, is wildly popular in Canada hmm. because Canadians have a much better temperament when it comes to talking about religion. Ah, uh, yeah. You know, it's, it's this really funny and really silly thing when I do Apostle in the States, not everywhere, but certain places, it's just, they don't boo or get upset, but you can hear in their, in their silence yeah. 
that they're not happy with what you're doing. Right. Uh, certainly in Dallas and North Carolina, uh, those are probably the two <laughs> the two hot spots. Uh, but yes, I feel like that's what I may do is I'm certainly going to tour in Canada and definitely in the UK. I feel like that's more where my audience is. I mean, I'm a big fan of guys like Ricky Gervais. Yeah. I think Ricky's really funny, but it's just really dark. Um, and even, uh, how, what's that other guy's name? I can't even think of anything. The guy with the, uh, oh, Russell Brand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As annoying as, as grating as his voice can be. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he truly is a really smart guy and he's really funny. So I don't know. I feel like maybe I get a lot of people from overseas in the UK that love Apostle and love the WJRT videos. So maybe there's something to that. I haven't really explored that yet. Right. You know, you had, you had touched on something just a second ago about, uh, um, you know, people responding a little differently to Apostle, uh, in the States. And that kind of leads me to a question, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of stand up, and I'm always interested in when I get the chance to talk to a comedian and what they think about material that could be deemed offensive. Um, cause it seems like comedians more than any other performers these days are lightning rods for controversy as yeah. far as what they say in the context of their act or making a joke. So, you know, even in the past year, you've had like Louis CK, um, Daniel Tosh, Natasha Legero, who have been the source of, people you know trying to i guess make a big thing about a joke that they made so I'm, I'm wondering what your stance is on what you should and shouldn't be able to joke about or say during a performance yeah i mean i think funny's funny i mean it's i think it's i think it's silly i think i don't i don't know when this all happened people getting so worked up about what somebody says you know um Unless it's an extreme example. I mean, like, okay, Michael Richards. Yes. So I used to go to that uh, club, and I used to see him perform there. Mm -hmm. And Michael was a very interesting, angry, erratic, funny, weird stand-up comic. It was was really like watching, you know, (laughs) I don't know, a time bomb on stage. (laughs) But it was funny. And... You know, there is a lot of there is a threat of anger, I think, in a lot of comedy for, for comics. I mean, definitely. I mean, that's no surprise that comics always talk about being miserable. And I think most of them are miserable. And uh, it's kind of a form of therapy for people. So I think that when you go into a comedy club, when you as an adult go into a comedy club at night they're serving drinks, and you know people are going to talk about things. I, I think it's. I think all bets are off the table. Now that does. Now that doesn't mean I'm saying go for it and say whatever you want. I mean, but short short of short of instigating people to rise up and you know against a certain race or to you know ban homosexuality. You know, other than that, I mean, who? What's the problem? I don't know what the problem is. Right. I mean, we're talking about words. We're well, just talking about people saying things, well, and uh, and it's so much of it is about context too. I mean, they're they are on stage making a joke. I mean, it's not like unless somebody is like out there spewing their hate that they actually believe in, then you know, it's jokes. Yeah, that's that's the other that you're right. You're absolutely right, and that's that speaks to the problem of the 21st century, which is, you know, everyone knows this. Everyone's got a phone, and everyone can record and videotape videotape listen to me what am i 100 years old <laughs> everyone can record and 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 you know shoot 
visually or you know on audio any any format they can capture this stuff and they can put it on the internet and so yes what michael richards did in that club was crazy and he had a moment of you know horrible judgment and he had a meltdown he was and he was pissed off and on one hand i get it not what he said but people do get rude and they talk during your act and it's bullshit and you get sometimes you get really mad about it i've seen other guys get mad i've seen other comics i'm not going to say their names but i've seen big comics at small clubs like you know, throw the mic down or throw the entire mic, mic stand off the stage and leave during their set because they can't take it anymore. Mm-hmm. So that's what Michael Richards did. He just, <laughs> I, 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 I understand what he was trying to do, but it was a hor- it was a horrible thing to say and it was just bad judgment. But, you know, we live in a society that's very unforgiving mm-hmm. for certain people. So it's like once you do something like that, See, that's, it's like once you do something like that, that's it forever. You're a racist and you're a horrible person. And that's bullshit. People make mistakes. Do you, you know? think that – I mean are you surprised at all that, that given some, some, some of the subject matter that comes up on the Late Late Show that there haven't been more complaints from people knowing how people are these days? Mm, I just don't think enough people are watching. <laughs> I mean I hate to say that, but you know, I mean, yes, we do, we do have a – you know, I think we're a very – we have our core audience. Um, Yes, people do complain about the dumbest shit. I've seen on the Facebook, this is why I had to stop going on there. The Late Late Show Facebook channel, there was some douche, some guy that would just constantly post about the endangered rhino. Oh, what? And he, like, I mean, diatribes and links and videos, and he would say, you know, you know, Josh, please urge Craig to take the rhino head down. And so finally I said to the guy, okay, dude, it, it's a fake rhino head. He's like, yes, but what it represents is the slaughter. And I said, okay, the rhino, the joke is the rhino is sticking his head through a hole in the wall. That's the joke I came up with. I just love the idea that there's a full rhino on the other side <laughs> of the wall. And he was like, well, let's see it then. Prove it. Prove it. You know, and you're dealing that that's at that point you're dealing with insanity. And I think most people that most people that take the time, think about that, that take the time out of their day to go online and voice their opinion, their negative opinion about a show, I think, you know, you gotta reevaluate what you're doing. Yeah. Definitely. Because I don't feel that way. I I watch television shows, you know, like Walking Dead is one of my favorite shows. Yeah, there have been some episodes and seasons that weren't the best, but I have never felt compelled to go to like to the AMC Facebook and say, listen, you guys, a couple of things I think you need to fix. That is the most annoying behavior. To Honestly, I, I can't deal with it. I think that's why I get so angry at people when they tweet me or email, email me sometimes and give me helpful suggestions on how I should do my job. Oh, my God. I couldn't even imagine doing that to anybody. Yeah. That's insane behavior, but unfortunately, that's where we're at now. We, we foster that kind of behavior. But by the way, that internet stuff accounts for a really, really small percentage. Sure. I mean, if you step back and take a look at it, it's, it's quite a relief because the average Joe on the street does not know what does the fox say or any of that shit. They don't know. It all exists inside the bubble of the, <laughs> the internet. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we are just about out of time. Wow. All right. Yeah. Uh, an hour goes by very fast. Yeah. Um, 
this was awesome. I loved having this conversation with you. Uh, so thank you again for being on. Yeah, thanks, man. I, do we but do we talk about cinema? I thought it was Cinesnob. I mean, if you want to spend a few minutes on movies, we can definitely do that. Is that a thing? I mean, why is, is that why it's called Cinesnob? Yeah, a, we're okay. a, we're we're film critics, basically. Okay, so so did you see Godzilla? I did. I saw it yesterday. All right. So what did you think of it? I was not crazy about it. Wow, uh, really? Yeah. Um, you know, I, you know, for me, it's a situation where like, you know. If you're gonna have like a a big dumb monster movie, that's fine. Like Pacific Rim, big dumb monster movie. Yeah. If yeah. if, if you want to have something that has a little bit more to it, I think you need to have like characters you can really relate to and a story that's kind of gripping. Which is why I don't know how you felt about this movie, but I love Cloverfield. Uh, yeah, sure. Sure. I, I think that's a perfectly executed monster movie. And for this, for Godzilla, I just didn't feel any connections to the characters. I it took forever to get going. And, uh, and yeah, I just wasn't crazy about it. And I was all about it. I was really excited for it. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I see your point there. I think the, the only – well, the two interesting characters were uh, the one played by Brian Cranston. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Ken uh, – Ken Wontana I, – I can't say the name. Yeah. The Asian, the Asian scientist. Yes. He was a very interesting character because he had a nice thread of connection to the original film. Uh, talking about the uh, Hiroshima bombing and which really was what led to the whole making of the original Godzilla film was right. Japan grappling with that post-nuclear, you know, attitude. Um, I thought it was really great, but I do understand what you're saying. I mean, God, God, at least it wasn't uh, 1998's Godzilla. Yeah. Well, which that's... I, I tried to rewatch last night and I, I don't even know why I did that. Not a high bar to reach, though. No, I understand, but I think I think I think all of that. I I like the impending sense of that you know this thing is coming. I thought I thought that the impending sense of dread yeah was awesome. But when Godzilla finally shows up, I don't know about you, but the the crowd that I was with just lost their minds. Yeah, the, God, yeah. It was when Godzilla you know launches the fireball out of his mouth that place just went apeshit it was fantastic yeah and that's i think that's where the the separate and not to bring it back to cloverfield but um but that was kind of the sense of this monster is here i don't know what's going on but we got to deal with this and so if you're going to give some backstory i mean you've got to just make it interesting and i i I just felt like the first like third of that movie was just a slog it was it was hard to get through yeah yeah i don't know if i I, yeah i I see what you mean i see what you mean I i still think it's better than I think it's better than any gods. I think it's funny because you look at the difference between 90s filmmaking and filmmaking today. You know, we have all these really great superhero movies. I mean, Marvel has done an amazing job of <laughs> creating this whole new universe yeah. uh, and doing it really ridiculously well. And if they tried that stuff in the 90s and we got things like, you know, Captain America and the first Punisher movie and just, just horrible pieces of crap. Yeah. Uh, so you look at Godzilla from the 90s, you see a really bad Roland Emmerich cash grab. But I agree, this movie was really trying to be serious and maybe they could have gone a little darker. But I think they got nervous because yeah. it's, it's a huge property, PG-13. Of course, they did fine. They made a lot of money, so I think they'll be yeah. all right. Well, one of the things I read that was interesting was that it was an interview with the director back when they were shooting it, Gareth Edwards, who did yeah. – uh, 
who did Monsters. I don't know if you saw Monsters, but yeah, I, it's a great I film. love that movie. It's a great film. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things he was saying, it was a set visit, and uh, he said that at, up until that point, they weren't going to say Godzilla's name at all in the movie. And um, and that was the plan going through, and then they were going to shoot some scenes and try to say it maybe once. And then you see the movie, and they say it like three or four times. And I, I wonder how, like, if there was any, like, studio nudging going on during any of this process. Because, you know, Frank Darabont did, at some point, a draft of the movie. And uh, I wonder how much of that was left. Yeah, I, there's probably, I, there'd probably be a different version of that. Okay, we'll probably see a different cut of that as well. Because uh, they had to rush through a lot. They had to introduce a family and then... And then do the you know anytime you do them like seventeen or fifteen years later you know it get, you already have problems yeah because you're already expected to care about people and then okay this is the guy that was a kid fifteen years ago all right ready uh, and I felt like Brian Cranston should have been the main guy yes. the whole way but I agree. because there was a, yeah there was a good uh, close encounters of the third kind vibe he was really like the Richard Dreyfus character because mm-hmm. he he was unveiling. This conspiracy, that was my favorite part of the beginning of the movie. It was like, oh, this isn't really what's going on. Yeah. You know, that was cool because then I thought anytime I hear of an earthquake now in Japan, I'm going to think, oh, it's Godzilla. <laughs> so where does your where do you, your movie taste align? What kind of stuff are you into? Uh, this is the best way I can describe it. The two movies that I can fall asleep to, uh, <laughs> meaning I think they're, they're, very, they're very peaceful movies. <laughs> are Apocalypse Now and Seven. <laughs> I think that those two movies are the most aesthetically pleasing, you know, well-made movies I, I've ever seen. But my top two movies of all time are King Kong, the original from 1933, and Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. So that's about where I'm at. And then Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing to really throw everybody off. <laughs> so you know? what do you look for when you're when you're watching a movie? I don't, I mean, it depends. You know what I mean? Like uh, you said, Pacific Rim. I mean, I can easily go into Pacific Rim and have a great time. Mm-hmm. That was an awesome movie. It was a stupid movie, yeah. but I mean, all, but it is what it is. It's big guys in robot suits fighting monsters. What else do you want? Right. I mean, it's the same way I feel about Transformers. I mean, I'm sorry, but I, I love the hell out of the Transformers movies. And I used to hate Michael Bay. He used to be like, God, Michael Bay is a piece of shit. No. But look, the truth is Michael Bay is really good at what he does. There, I, I couldn't make a movie like that. I don't even know how you start making a movie like that. Yeah, yeah, they're too damn long. I mean, but geez, you know, if I was a kid, I grew up in the 80s when Transformers was new and was on TV. If we had a movie like that when we were kids, I mean, our, our heads would have exploded. Yeah. Especially with Megan Fox in there. What's wrong with you? <laughs> No, they're they're bad movies, but I think when people criticize those movies, it's kind of like, what's the point, man? It's like it's like going to see the Smurfs and being like, Smurfs sucks, bro. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> yeah. Not for, what is? I mean, it's I want to see robots fighting each other. That's all I care about. But yeah. on the other hand, uh, you know, I like dark films. I mean, like Sling Blade is another favorite. I like movies like that. Really, really dark uh, character pieces. You know, mostly movies about, you know, it, usually I, all the movies I like are about like loner guys, you know, like seven is about seven is about a, a, a detective who's about to retire in this dreary city where there's nothing good that ever happens. And, you know, Apocalypse Now is about one man, Martin Sheen, who has to go up the river 
and kill another man. I mean, that that's pretty interesting. Yeah. I think themes that expose the uncomfortable aspects of our society, like Eyes Wide Shut, Stanley Kubrick's last film. That's a very uncomfortable movie for a lot of people. But I like that. I guess I like the uncomfortable. That's another one I could watch all the time. I got problems. I need to go <laughs> to the therapist. Speaking of movies, what can you say about uh, the movie that you have coming out, Nowhere Girl? Nowhere Girl. No, Nowhere Girl is nowhere. No. Uh, <laughs> nowhere Girl is supposed to come out in October. That's the last I heard. So I'm assuming it's not going to be a theatrical release, which is fine. It's probably going to be like iTunes or something like that. Has it been submitted to festivals? I think they're in the process of doing that. I mean, I, I wasn't, I'm not really uh, a producer or part of the film that way. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not too sure on what's going on there. But yeah, I, I'm hearing they're going to submit it to some festivals and then see what happens. Um, it's, it's a good film. It's a good film. It's definitely, uh, you know, it's a romantic comedy. And that was a really good challenge for me to play the lead in a romantic comedy. And the real task for me was to, to not be funny. All the other characters in the movie get big laughs and get all the funny lines. Um, and I thought, well, how the hell am I going to do this? Yeah. But it came out really well. And I have a lot of good, good material, you know, for my real... Um, so I feel good about that because I thought, oh boy, if this doesn't work, because I thought if this doesn't work, then that's it. You know, I can't, I got to go back to doing impressions. And, and this was your first, your first movie? It was my first starring role? feature length movie. Yeah. I, I had done another film for this same writer director. There was a short film where I played like six or seven characters. Uh, that one's called Non Sequitur. That's on, that's actually on my, uh, my website mm. on the YouTube uh, link. Um, but this was something different. You know, this was different. And, uh, yeah, it's weird. It's weird to be romantic and have to kiss somebody in front of a bunch of sweaty dudes who are uh, <laughs> working the camera. No, it was a great crew. We shot it in San Francisco. And uh, very proud of it. Yeah. Very proud of it. That's awesome. I can't wait to see that. And uh, I will say one last thing. I am excited about the new Star Wars film. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a touchy subject. I get in debates a lot about Star Wars with people. I think people will be fighting about Star Wars until, you know, the end of eternity. I think it'll, you know. But uh, I'm, a, I'm a, you know, as weird as they are, I'm, I am a fan of uh, the prequels as well. Okay. I have to say, it's, it's not popular to say that. What do you think I, of the, the casting so far? Amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. I think the, the best part of the casting is uh, not anybody that's on camera, but... Uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, what's his name? I can't even think of the guy's name. Um, Lawrence Kasdan. Mm, mm -hmm. Lawrence Kasdan was the writer on Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. And Lawrence Kasdan is a tremendously... Also, he wrote a movie called Raiders of the Lost Ark. But uh, Lawrence Kasdan was an amazing writer. And it was really awesome that J.J. Abrams could bring him back into the fold to work on this film. But yeah, I mean, Max von Sydow, Andy Serkis, I mean, God knows what he's going to be playing. Yeah, you mentioned the screenwriting. That's interesting because the original draft was supposed to be Michael Arndt, who uh, he, uh, I think he was the, he's the only screenwriter to ever have Oscar nominations for his first two movies because he was nominated for, and he won for Little Miss Sunshine, I believe, and then he was nominated for Toy Story 3. Toy Story 3, that's right. So I wonder, I wonder what happened there. 
Well, I mean, I don't know. It's hard. It's tough to say. It's anyone's guess, but it certainly is a. It certainly is a huge property. I think he was probably happy just to even be brought in. But yeah. you know, I think I think they're just being so careful about it now. Certainly, the prequels did really well. The prequels made a crap load of money. Yeah. Um, and I think for a younger generation, they had no problem. I mean. I'd see kids walking around with their Jar Jar Binks t-shirts and their Anakin shirts. And I just thought, you know, that's, that's it. I mean, that <laughs> look, I, I was, I was uh, eight years old when Return of the Jedi came out and I was all about the Ewoks. Right. Mm -hmm. And then I watched that movie today and I can still make that journey. I can sort of flip that switch in my head to kind of a childhood mentality, but it's not a very good movie. I mean, the first, the first 30 minutes is amazing. The rescue of Han Solo from Jabba's palace is tremendous, but then it's kind of like, Oh, another death star. Really? <laughs> I think it's but a, that's my cynical adult. mind. I think at, at this point, the biggest mistake Abrams can make is to visually make it look like a JJ Abrams movie because yeah. people, people are like, have had it up to here with the lens flares and the Dutch <laughs> angles and stuff. Yeah, I think even J.J., and he has said this on a couple of red carpet interviews, that he, he apologizes for the lens flares. And uh, he said even his uh, – I think he said even his wife had given him crap about it and that he, they had gone in in the previous Star Trek film, the last one that came out, uh -huh. and actually had them – they had to digitally remove some of the lens flares. I don't really have a problem with it. I don't I – don't... I don't either. See, this is what I mean. This is the internet – this is the internet age thing where – you know, look, uh, they showed Ben Affleck in the new Batman suit. Yeah. Everybody, oh, so, okay, everybody online. <laughs> yes. There's nobody, there's nobody in the real world that gives two shits about that. I saw the Batsuit, and my first reaction was, wow, that's fucking awesome. That looks like, that looks like some dark shit. But I hated Man of Steel, so what do I know? Yeah, I hated it too. And I was going to ask what you, I, first of all, I hated Man of Steel completely. I thought it was terrible. Yeah, it's really uh, um, But what do you make of, not only Zack Snyder taking that on, but but you know revamping Batman like what two three years after Christopher Nolan's trilogy is over. Yeah, I I don't know I don't know that it's so much Zack Snyder's thing as it is DC because I think well clearly DC is trying to is trying very hard to do what Marvel has so successfully done already. Yeah, and it's just not working out for them. I mean, yeah. you know yeah. the Batman movies aside, the Dark Knight trilogy is is epic and beautiful, but it doesn't, it's not light, you know, it's, yeah. <laughs> and they have a real reputation for being the darker side of, of the comic, uh, you know, graphic novel, comic book fair. I think they should go with that though. I think that's good. I think we should have variety. I mean, but man of steel, I don't know what that was. <laughs> well, it's like, it, it almost seemed I mean, everything that DC is doing right now is a conscious effort to not get their asses handed to them by Marvel, which is what's happening. And so, yeah. like, they're pushing forward with Justice League really fast, and Superman was written super fast because the rights were uh, about to expire. And I just that movie was just a mess. Yeah, I mean, when your when your movie makes Superman Returns look like uh, a sweet film. Yeah. And by the way, I didn't think Superman Returns was a bad movie, and I rewatched it recently, and I was very moved by a lot of it. Yeah, the only problem with it was that Lex Luthor was doing the same thing that he has always done: is you know, destroy property, and you know, it's all about real estate with that guy, you know. But but that aside, I thought, wow, this is a kind of a dark, sad, bittersweet movie, and I can kind of see why 
people were let down by it. But poor yeah. Brandon Routh, man. I mean, I thought he was perfectly fine. I was like, geez, he looks just – he acts just like Christopher Reeve. This is weird. He never really bounced back either from that. No, and that's – you know, listen, that's – that's what they're going to be saying about me. They're going to go, that guy's a robot. He didn't, he's too bad. No, but I mean, it's a tough business, but I, I do, I did like Superman Returns quite a bit. I'm very excited about the new X-Men movie, Yeah. but beside myself for Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. Did you see the new trailer today? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Chris Pratt. Uh, I love Parks and Recreation and he's just incredible on that show. So I, I'm, I'm so excited about him being the lead. See, that's cool, man. See that. And that's what I mean, that Marvel doing it right. Marvel's going, hey, you know what? What about this property over here? Let's not just do the regular things. Yeah, well, yeah. Don't know what the – they've seen the rocket raccoon. They're like, what the hell is this? What's going on here? Yeah. But they greenlit it. Look, the fact that a movie like that is greenlit today is amazing. 20 years ago, hell no. Well, and Marvel's but, in a position where they can take a risk like that at this point. Yeah, no, I agree. Spider-Man, you know, but you know, I, I'm not a big Spider-Man guy. Yeah, well, and Sony is sucking the life out of that franchise. Yeah, it's bad. It's bad. So, but there you go. I don't know. But Star Wars—that's all I can think about. And the new Planet of the Apes film. I mean, forget about it. Yeah. Excited. Yeah. Anyway. All right, that was movie talk there. Yeah. Next time, yeah, I'll come on next time and get my dissertation on why the uh, the Star Wars prequels are actually very good movies. That would be a very interesting podcast. Yeah, because I—they're amazing films. Because I, I, I did an audio book recently. It's not out yet. But it's a 700-page book called The Secret History of Star Wars. Mm -hmm. And I read the whole book as an audio book, but I also, when George Lucas would be quoted, I would talk like George Lucas. <laughs> that, that George Lucas impression is so funny. Yeah, George Lucas. Uh, you know, Star Wars prequels are really sort of a uh, history of the whole, you know, whole saga. I don't know. <laughs> I think that's genius. I met him once, I met him once in a hotel. The door to the elevator opened, and there was George Lucas and his. It wasn't quite his wife; he was his fiance. This, you know, this tall black woman, and then little George Lucas. It was really funny. It's like R two D two and C three PO. Have you heard uh, Patton Oswalt's impression? Uh, he has a bit on one of his CDs about uh, about the prequels. Uh, oh, about uh, ice cream? Is that the whole? Yes, the Angelina Jolie yeah. thing too. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah that's yeah, funny. I love that. That's another guy. Guy's a genius. Yeah. Well, uh, we have gone way over, which is fine by me, but uh, I will go ahead and let you go here. Um, thank you again for being on. Uh, this is the very first uh, interview we've done on here, and I think it was an awesome way to start things off. And it will probably be the last. No, yes. I'm just <laughs> no thanks, man. I appreciate it. It's a really good conversation and uh, eager to hear uh, how it comes out. Excellent. And so thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been the CineSnob Podcast, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Cine Snob Podcast. To read reviews, interviews, and more, visit CineSnob.net. See you next week.